Hey, everybody, if you haven't already, pull out your smartphones and go to cornet.cnf.io to uh, interactively ask the panel questions. And I'm gonna, we're short on time, so we're going to pass it uh, right off to Mike Thomas. Thanks. Got Mike. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, we're hopping into our end of summer Cornet presentation. Uh, it's a great presentation. It's about learning from the trenches on global deals. Uh, we've got a fantastic group up here to go through a couple of projects they, they went through. Um, great companies, great speakers. Uh, Tanya's going to kick us off. She's going to start off in China with a really fun project Mary Kay has done. We'll move on to Kevin. Kevin uh, has done some work in India and some great project work for the CME. Talk about a fantastic company. Uh, Mario's gonna hit it with Oracle on the Latin America. And Lee's gonna bring it up at the end on uh, Europe. He's doing some great work on an M&A project. Uh, he's been traveling a lot back and forth to Milan. And uh, we just wanna hop into this quickly. Please keep eating. Uh, we know we're kind of interrupting a little bit here, but. Uh, it's a lot to compact into. We've got about an hour and 15 minutes, a lot of speakers. So without any further ado, I'd like to get it kicked off. Um, an introduction of Tanya. Tanya Richel, uh, she actually is from out of town. She's from Dallas. She's come up here so kind to join us today. Uh, again, her project is in China for Mary Kay. Mary Kay, as many of you know, is a privately owned company doing some fantastic work. Uh, the work on the global front for them is so important. Uh, China is actually their top revenue sales area. It's surpassed the US. Um, Tanya's brought a lot of uh, good presentation. I've actually saw a sneak preview at the Discovery Forum a few weeks ago from uh, some of the leaders in the room. Uh, without any further ado, thank you, Tanya. Please come on up. Thank you. And thank you for inviting me here today. Um, it's a pleasure to always make it here to Chicago. I really enjoy getting up here and enjoying your city. So it's always a little cooler than what we are in Dallas. So I enjoy that as well. So we'll jump right into this, kind of reaching back into my former career before real estate in the airlines. Fasten your seatbelt. We're gonna do a very quick flyby on this project because we have some other really great speakers up here that I don't wanna take up too much time. But really, for Mary Kay, most of the women in the room know us. Um, some of the men know us. We do have a small men's product line, if you're not aware, but this is more about the real estate. First, a quick overview on Mary Kay, who we are. We are privately held. Um, the company is still owned by Mary Kay's son and um, grandchildren, the Rogers family. It, it is a beauty and skincare product is the kind of what we are measured against. But we only sell through our um, independent beauty consultants. We, you do not find us in any store. We do not do any direct selling to um, the market. It's all, um, or any selling to consumer market directly. So Mary Kay opened in 1963 with 500 square foot storefront on her own, her and her son opened it up basically a month after her second husband passed away suddenly. So the, um, right now, last two years ago, 
was the 50th anniversary of Mary Kay, and they had a goal to have 3 million independent beauty consultants around the world. They hit that goal, slightly surpassed it. For 2017, our next goal is to have 4 million, and we're well on our way to that. So we're best known for enriching women's lives. That was Mary Kay's focus, giving women an opportunity to have a career at whatever level they wanted, if they just want to bring in revenue to their family or if they wanted to make it a full-fledged career owning their own business. The other thing is pink Cadillacs. We do use other cars in some other countries because the Cadillac doesn't always fit. <laughs> but she built the company on three core values, God first, family second, and career third. We still adhere to that today. It's a very tight-knit group. It's not unusual to have a longevity 20, 30, 40 years of our employees. So jumping off into the facilities, just to give a background of who we are, um, globally, a lot of people think of us just being here domestically. We are in, and this is actually wrong here, it didn't get updated, 38 countries around the world, 23 different currencies that I have to deal with on the real estate side. And we have a mixture of, you know, own versus leased with most of our um, portfolio housed in our logistics. Our distribution centers covers the biggest footprint of our overall, but we have our office. This is our headquarters in Dallas. We have manufacturing in Dallas that we manufacture for all of the world except China. In China, we did have to build a manufacturing that supports just China. It doesn't even support the rest of Asia. So just a quick breakdown of how we look. 50% um, of all of our square feet are in, uh, or square meters is in the warehousing section. So really talking about kind of China, give you an idea of what some of the barriers that we saw there and just the process that we had to go into. This actually reaches back before I even started with Mary Kay a year and a half ago, but in January of 2012, we knew we had the need of China was about to become our largest market, and we had a need to try to um, control some of those costs. And we had an expiring lease of our headquarters at the time, and we were about 20 months out. So we had to make some good decisions and how we were gonna look at this long term. So as we moved up to it being our largest market, which it is now, um, we really saw a huge increase in China that um, costs were just rising. Shanghai and China as a whole was very hot market in the real estate world and a lot of companies were going there. So we'd just seen many increases You'll see here, we were rejecting from our 2007 up to 2016. We're going to about a 46% increase over that time. And we really needed to take a look at how we controlled that cost. And we're still successful at it. We knew as we grew, we needed more support. So we needed to be able to house the growth in our employees as well. So we had to take a look from the global perspective. China's becoming our largest market, but we also have a need around the world as well. So we really needed to make sure that whatever we did was great investment, but considering the rest of the world and what kind of investment we needed to make there. And um, we did not want to deteriorate our financial profitability. It was good, but we didn't want to get so big and um, have such a heavy burden financially that it really ate into that area as well. So we wanted to look at long-term, not just short leases. We really needed to, we knew we were going to be there long-term. We needed to look at a long-term strategy of a mini, minimum of 50 years. And we basically opened up and looked at just about everything you can imagine. Do we stay where we're at, extend our leases? Do we, you know, go build in a greenfield? Do we lease another space? Do we buy? 
So we went through a number of different um, options as we considered this. So we really broke it down into two phases. The phase one was this whole decision making and finding a property, whatever it was, lease or buy. And we're right now into phase two. That story hasn't even been final, finally written. We're in the midst of it now. So this is really just focusing on that phase one and our timeline, which you'll see here at the 2015-16 is the construction phase we're in now. So we looked at the requirements. In China, we're very much positioned as a high-end beauty product, so we really needed our image there. But did you do that in something high-end downtown image and take your back office elsewhere? We looked at all of those options. And, but we needed easy access to our independent beauty consultants as well, because they are our sales force. And um, in the Shanghai area, we were in Jingyang, that was where our um, market was, where our office was at that time. That is basically the CBD of Shanghai. They are doing some more building in the Pudong area. That's kind of got a higher financial that they're actually building out now in the last five, six, seven years. Um, but Jingyang is still the core, the CBD, but it also carries the highest average rental rates. So we knew that was an issue. But we were trying to, you know, flatten our costs. But we knew in that market that we would be paying. So the other things, could we decentralize? Could we split that office? Could we move elsewhere? Um, and you know, what was that impact if we left out of the CBD area? One of the things in Shanghai at the time, they've really done a great job of expanding their metro system because there with so many people, that's really the main um, transportation mode for the forces. And so before everybody came into the city, now in this growth that they were doing, had great opportunities to go out elsewhere, to go out to the suburbs, because your people could still get to you. So we didn't look just in this market, we looked all around um, outside of the metro as well. How we structured it, this was just kind of our quick structure internally of how we did it with the project leader who is my manager, kind of coordinating everything, facilitating everything going up all the way to our executive group, which is our headquarters group, but they don't force the decision out. We always have the other region, our Asia Pacific region um, president involved as well. So they have a say in what we do as well because we need to look to them for the guidance. So financial, legal, and facilities are really the core team that are doing the on the ground work, supporting this all the way up. We, we use a very lean, um, team within our facilities and real estate. So when we have a need, we look to our partners and the professionals out there for the particular market, who is the best in the market to help us with this project. And these are the three that we selected for the Shanghai office search. Just quickly what our financial models were and um, kind of what we put across the spreadsheet to do our analysis with all of the different um, pieces and components that we were looking at, leasing, buying, building, in every aspect. And again, the factors in here covering all of the different things that we would need to do, all the way down to our parking costs, agency fees as well. So the 15-year net present value was the piece, but we also really needed that accessibility. And again, our image was a big piece of making the right decision and keeping us well positioned in the culture. So CB helped us in this respect with four different stages basically to pull it all together. We ran through it, again, here's all the different scenarios that we looked at, looked at over 70 properties 
around the metropo metropolitan area there to figure out what it is we wanted to do. When we kind of broke it down and through the analysis, you'll see here if we stayed status quo where we were at with the trajectory of the rent increases and stuff, we could do a split office, get about a 16% gain, a property purchase started looking a lot better. So, you know, you've got a larger cash layout at the front, but the long-term piece is what we were looking at. Also, net investment, our NPV, again, it pointed us towards purchasing the property. Now, in China, you don't ever own the land, long-term leases, but you do own the building. So, in that, we basically looked at the, went through the due diligence, did our negotiations, completed the acquisition, and we're in the phase two now. This is our building. This is the one that we purchased. That is not Photoshop. That is our actual logo up there. We closed last spring of 14. We will not actually move into this property until the end of 16 or third quarter, early fourth quarter of 16. Um, we knew we were buying the building for um, long term, so we don't need all of the space, but there was a lot of tenants in there at the time. So we have spent the last year basically um, as leases fell out, either trying to renew them or reposition them within the building so we could get the space that we needed to start building out. Um, we just last month succeeded in that. We have all of the space 100% leased out that would be vacant over the next five years. So we've actually kind of exceeded our financial modeling because we had built in a vacancy factor to that. Most of your leases over there are three to five years, a little bit different here. You're starting to see a little bit longer term, but that's one of our challenges. Um, but we will be building this out, moving our group in, and um, everybody's very excited. Everybody's just tired of waiting, I think. It's more of the issue that we have right now. So um, thank you so much. I'll be glad to answer any questions you might have um, about this project, but hopefully that gave you a little bit of insight into our international realm in China. So I, <laughs> great, great job. Thanks, Tanya. Uh, I do have a question, yes. and it's regarding how you selected the Jing, Jingho, Jingyang. Jingyang district over the Pudong district. Yes, the Jingyang, it really came down to financials. Um, when we first went into China and went into the CBD in Jingyang, we received some very lucrative tax incentives. And if we left that, we had to pay a lot of that back. So that was our biggest factor because once you factored that piece into it to go out into another providence, um, the financials really didn't work. We love it. It's, it fits our culture and it fits our marketing of the product. So it worked well, but it definitely was the factor that pushed us to stay in that market. So uh, if you all are emailing or texting in the, your questions, we're calculating them over there. Uh, if we have any from the field, if not, I've got one or two more that, um, how do you want to play it? One or two more? Sure. Uh, what's some of the differences you see in, in the China office market? Yeah, as, as I said a little bit earlier, um, their market is not near as mature as your US or your Europe market. So what I had seen, and not just in the office, but even in the retail markets and stuff there, you have a lot of smaller ownerships in these properties. So they really only want to do one, two, or three-year leases. We're used to doing a lot longer-term leases. They are starting to move forward and embrace some of the more world 
um, type of real estate processes as more investors go in over there. You're seeing a little bit longer term, but a lot of times you get into these one, two, and three year that you're just always churning your leases. So it seems to be a little bit more of a challenge from the real estate perspective of just not being able to negotiate those longer lease terms. Great. From the field? Okay. Great. Um, thank you. Thank, thank you, you very, very much, much, everyone. So if I see a pink Cadillac and you're UT, yeah? with the big long horns on the front. Ooh. In Dallas, I know to, that's probably you and I better get out of the yeah, way. We yeah, we do not drive pink Cadillacs. Our executives do not even drive pink Cadillacs. Those are only reserved for our top sales beauty consultants. So you don't see pink Cadillacs in our parking garage, only in our visitors parking when they're coming to our office. Beautiful, great. All right, next up we have Kevin and uh, Kevin is gonna take us on to a project in India that his team just completed. And uh, he's going to give us lessons from the, the pits here that, that we go through every day. Um, Kevin, by the way, manages the global real estate solution for CME. Uh, Kevin and I happen to be good neighbors about less than a quarter mile apart. So we see each other frequently. And uh, I'm excited and interested to hear what you got to say. Great, Welcome, thanks. Kevin. <laughs> Uh, thanks, Mike. Uh, yeah, Mike left out that we used to be on the board of our village together, and I have to say to the mayor, it's very impressive that you would stick with the uh, with small town government because I'll never do it again. <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, so again, Kevin Lennon, I head real estate for CME Group. Um, I I'm gonna hope that everyone knows who CME Group is. Not everyone, you know, always does, but so CME Group is the combination of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange, the Chicago Board of Trade, the New York Mercantile Exchange, and the Kansas City Board of Trade. So as you know, over the past eight years or so, we've been sort of combining uh, the major uh, futures exchanges. Uh, so we're roughly uh, 3,000 employees. Uh, uh, we're in 14 cities around the world, uh, 2.3 million square feet, but the vast majority of that is here in Chicago. So hopefully, you know, some of you uh, have seen the, the trading floors, the diminishing trading floors here in Chicago uh, when you were kids, uh, maybe. Um, uh, so we're down to one trading floor here in Chicago and one in New York. Uh, the vast majority of our business is now uh, on, you know, electronic trading. Uh, we do have one remaining down at the uh, Board of Trade Complex. Um, so uh, other than Chicago, we uh, were really a, gl a global company, very much globalizing. Our you know, growth strategies in, in Europe and Asia are pretty robust and long-term. Uh, we have uh, pretty good-sized offices in New York, London, Singapore. Uh, a couple of years ago, we opened a development office in Belfast. Uh, and then we've got a bunch of little offices uh, around the world, uh, DC, Houston, Boston, Last year, we opened uh, offices in Hong Kong and Beijing, uh, and then a couple other small one-person, two-person offices. So, um, so that's kind of the highlights of our uh, uh, of our portfolio. So, and then CME again. Just to be clear, CME is we provide the facilities to trade futures. We are not actually the traders, right? Traders are all independent and uh, separate from us. So. Um, 
So I'm just going to, most of my presentation is really just pictures. Uh, India, uh, you know, of all the places I've done business with is the most unique and different than from the U.S. And so I, uh, we, when we went there earlier this year, we traveled with uh, one of our in-house counsel, and he liked taking pictures of whatever he thought was funny. So I used most of those. But, um, but uh, you know, the, my experience with India, I think, is really sort of a validation of kind of the benefit of these meetings and being part of, of Cornet. So uh, earlier this year, when we first started looking at it, uh, I was getting ready to go over there. And I was at one of these meetings, and I cornered uh, Mike and uh, Martin Clark and just you know, asked them to download everything they knew about India. And it was a, you know, they couldn't stop talking about it, because uh, <laughs> it is such a, a unique place. So. Um, so we just signed a lease, about 35,000 square feet. We're planning on putting around 300, uh, 300 people there, uh, primarily IT and quants. Uh, uh, so um, it's really you know, starting from zero, going to 300 in the next couple of years is our expectation. Um, you know, we uh, have a couple senior leaders in our organization uh, that are from India, and so we're very comfortable making this, making this jump. Uh, they had sort of narrowed it down to a couple cities. We really were looking, uh, debating between uh, Bangalore and Pune. Uh, Pune is a, a city, sort of more sort of a growing city, uh, you know, uh, in the IT uh, development area that's sort of booming right now. Uh, we ended up deciding on Bangalore, uh, mostly because it was sort of safer. We're only you know 300 employees, and for sort of a you know an effort in India, that's fairly small, uh, and it, it was sort of more established. So that's why we chose that. We did consider um, one other city, and I mentioned it. We didn't really consider it seriously, but it's just sort of interesting to to know about. Is there there's uh, something called the Gift City, which is the uh, the Gujarat International Finance Tech City. So this is Prime Minister Modi is, has decided he's going to build a city from the ground up and uh, have it be sort of the financial hub, or that's his, his hope and goal, uh, is to sort of start from scratch and create sort of a, a special economic zone for that city. Um, so if any of you are looking into that, it's something maybe to keep an eye on. Again, it's, it's it's very early stage, so uh, probably further down the road. But so I wanted to really just talk about maybe some of the the unique things that that I learned and came across with respect to India and how India is is different than uh, maybe the U.S. and a lot of the other other countries that I've uh, done business in. Um, so uh, infrastructure. Uh, so infrastructure is wildly different, right? So I mean, these are these are just things we stumbled across walking around the street. So it's really, uh, I mean, it's obviously a, a you know a, a, you know has a lot of challenges in the infrastructure area. Um, basically, any um, any office buildings that that we looked at and what any probably any of you as uh, any multinationals going into other countries would look at you'd really would only consider buildings that have ge uh, full generator backup because the power is that unreliable basically every day there's there's multiple uh, outages or brownouts so all the big you know sort of uh, buildings that are developed for multinationals really have that um, the the construction uh, you know standards and the uh, uh, sort of safety standards for construction are really, I mean, it's, it's truly a different world. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's uh, 
you know, it's you know, obviously this looks a little crazy. I mean, it, but it, it, it and it really is. It's sad, you know. I mean, there's obviously a lot of poverty in India, um, and the, and the safety standards are really very concerning. So, you know, as a as a company that obviously doesn't want uh, want to see people hurt and you know you know cares about their image, you got to be very cautious about. Um, sort of the the folks that you partner with and develop uh, you know partner uh, relationships with there. So um, there there is a good amount of uh, sort of grade A what appears from the street as grade A quality you know office space uh, going up. I mean it's constantly building. Uh, you know it's uh, Bangalore particularly is a really a, a boom town. So um, there's a lot of uh, unique things about the sort of the HR and recruiting uh, issues there. Uh, it's, it's uh, and I don't know if this is a law or just the custom, but basically anybody that you hire you, will, will uh, you know, accept a job, uh, they'll give 60 days notice to their current employer and then they'll start looking around for another job to see if they can get, you know, get a little bit more money. And so it's, it's really sort of hairy. We're just starting the recruiting process. So it's a, it's a, it's, it's a unique uh, way to go about it, right? So especially since we are looking to hire a lot in, in a short period of time, they're making maybe two offers for every position because half of the people won't end up, even though they've said that they're going to take your job, they don't take it. So, um, so that I think is very unique and different. There's high, high turnover rate uh, in India. Uh, you know, those of you who are there uh, you know, probably have experienced that. Uh, the other, one of the other interesting things about India is the transportation. I don't think you can really, uh, you know, underplay how uh, bad traffic is and how bizarre the the you know the the situation is with traffic. I mean, this is you know that's what it looks like, and you can be stuck in a traffic jam for a couple hours. Uh, so the selection of location, uh, you know, is really uh, you know really challenging. Uh, uh, yeah, and, and so even though Bangalore is a, a large city with you know significant you know IT population, you know you might be only able to recruit from a portion of the city because it's so difficult to get around. Uh, it is pretty much the custom uh, for large companies to provide at least some level of transportation to uh, you know for employees. Certainly after hours, after hours. Uh, before and after, after I think it's like from 6 a.m. to 7, 7 p.m., before and after regular hours, uh, by law, you have to have escorts, security escorts for any female employees. Uh, so obviously, that's very different, very unique, very challenging from a logistic uh, perspective. Um, you know, they've got it all there. Uh, this is a, one picture of what is not uncommon to see a family of four or five riding a motorcycle in heavy traffic, which to me was very scary and unique. This is not a pink uh, car, a gold-plated car. I just put it on there because I thought it was funny. I, I don't think CME is going to start giving those out to our uh, big performers, but you know, if they want to, I'll take one. I wouldn't drive it in uh, Bangalore traffic, though. I would be afraid of that. So. Um, uh, Another interesting sort of difference is, uh, you know, food service. Because traffic is so bad, uh, you know, it's, it's, again, pretty much the norm for employers to provide lunch, at, you know, in the offices, certainly for, you know, multinationals. Uh, so that's another logistic challenge they had to work out. And, again, Mike was nice enough to share some contacts with me, and we're trying to, you know, figure that whole thing up. That's unique. Um, certainly when you go there, it's a challenge to make sure you find 
safe places to eat because, you know, it's funny, we went with, uh, there, were, there were four of us, two of them were our guys who work for us who are now living in the US but were originally from India and they were the only guys who got sick, but I don't know if they were just a little less cautious, but, uh, um, oh, more transportation. So the cliche about the cows in the street, it's actually true, right? <laughs> so that does not help the transportation. And they do have McDonald's. It's a nice picture of me with, with McDonald's. I didn't eat there, but uh, so. Uh, and then, you know, I think what we all would share is that, you know, there's, you know, very significant cultural differences, you know, and there's the language, uh, you know, language barrier in all these sort of international, you know, locations. You know, you get a lot of, uh, uh, you know, uh, things lost in translation. These were, again, just some funny pictures. I'd like particularly like the, uh, this is from China, but it's the, uh, inter apparently the international symbol for drunk driving with the bottle spinning around her head. So. Uh, so it was, a, it was a super interesting experience. You know, I think you know we were talking earlier. I, you know, I think this is one of the great things about uh, what that I love about this this business is going to see new places, and you really see it. Uh, you see new countries or cities from a different perspective. You're not going to the tourist areas. You're really you know meeting the people who work there and seeing how they work and live. And it's really, I thought it was really cool. So, so thanks. I, actually, I have a, a quick question. Okay. Where did you end up siting your building and why? Uh, so we ended up in, uh, in an uh, office park that is sort of fairly close into the city center uh, in Bangalore. We actually ended up moving into space that Yahoo just vacated. Uh, and we were really excited about that because it just you know the the logistics of doing things in India is, are really challenging. Uh, construction, we're really sort of you know bracing ourselves for that. And this space was basically in moving condition, and we're doing very little construction, which really you know uh, was a relief. I mean, India is very bureaucratic; it's very uh, challenging to get things done, and so it just took a lot of stuff off my plate. Uh, and that was nice. And, and the location was, you know, in, in India, you know, you got to move very quickly on empty vacant, you know, vacant office space because there's so much growth there. So many uh, big U.S. firms have moved there and then they, you know, they, they'll move 1,000 people there and then the next year they'll decide they need 5,000 people there. So, so there's a, a constant frenzy over space. So it was challenging to get that done, but it really turned out well. And plus, the, the, one of the benefits of the, of the location is that it's sort of closer into the city center and, and uh, they are uh, building a subway, so it's close to that. So that's hopefully going to help us with uh, recruiting and retention. So. Um, from a HR standpoint, are you growing your IT solution or you're shifting from third party to uh, in-house? I, I, the, I, the HR people call it going captive, and I don't think that's a very nice word for it, but uh, uh, what, what's happening in your company? Yeah, that's a good question, and I, I should definitely be clear about that because this is not outsourcing, right? This is not moving uh, Chicago jobs to India. What we're really doing is uh, we've, you know, we, we have a fairly heavy uh, amount of uh, consultants, particularly for IT in our clearinghouse. Uh, you know, a lot of consultants in India. We actually have some consultants in Argentina and some around the U.S. And, you know, we hire consultants to do a little job work and then they never leave, right? So, it, it, and we found that we've, we're keeping these consultants for so long and we're, 
you know, they'll turn them over, but we still have those consultants. So we thought it made a lot more sense to hire in India. It's, you know, cost savings for sure. Uh, but uh, you know we're able to we're able to have more continuity. We're going to pay up a little bit more maybe than the average employer to try to you know kind of deal with that turnover rate. Uh, and so um, you know we think it's we think it's the right play. We also CME is really uh, you know has a very long view of globalization, particularly in Asia, uh, and having more IT staff and clearing staff there in Asia in in the Asian time zone. We think it's really going to help us with you know all of the countries in Asia. So great. Anything from the field? One question here. Um, did you make any mistakes due to cultural differences? I don't know, did I insult anyone in the room with these pictures? Because hopefully I didn't. Um, uh, I don't know, no one's, uh, no one's told me so, but. Uh, <laughs> any other okay. questions? All right, thanks. Great, thanks, Kevin. Okay, next we're moving to Latin America. Mario is gonna uh, share some Oracle experiences in uh, South America and Latin America. And um, welcome. Again, Mario is from uh, the Miami office, Miami Cornet. So he's a visitor from out of town. Please welcome Mario. Thank you very much, Mike. And, and thank you to the board for inviting me. I'm really excited to be here. I love Chicago. Chicago's my kind of town, especially in the summer, because in Miami it's very humid and and uh, very hot. Um, I'm here to talk a little bit about Latin America, uh, give you a little bit of flavor, and we had a very successful project that we did uh, a couple of years back, and I want to give you some insight on how we developed that project and, and the process we went through to, to get it uh, to the point that all the users are very happy. Uh, I also was going to show you some pictures, and if time permits, we'll virtually take you to Sao Paulo and give you a tour of the, the, the office. Um, I do really have gotten fond of going to Latin America. I travel there extensively. And even more so now seeing India, because that is just some traffic I could not believe. I thought I had bad in, in Latin America and Sao Paulo. Uh, discussion points that I'm gonna be reviewing, I'm gonna talk a little bit about our portfolio and, and the organization. Uh, I do wanna give you some insight into some uh, specifics in working on that. It's, it's not as sophisticated as the US. I think you're finding that uh, from the rest of the panel, very, very different. And uh, I wanted to try to give you an idea of what you might expect if you go down there. Uh, as far as the project, I'm gonna be explaining a little bit the, how we evolved this concept, we call the collaboration concept. Uh, it was uh, challenged by our president of the region. He wanted to do something that was very different than with the traditional way we had been developing and planning space. And so with that, uh, it gave us the impetus to do something a little bit more crazier in the Oracle world and uh, it ended up being very successful, and now it's being expanded throughout the globe. Uh, and I'll show some drawings and some renderings of the actual product, and then again, if time permits, the video. Uh, in the portfolio, uh, we've got 654 sites total. Uh, of those, 574 are uh, leased, uh, and of those, we have 71 that are subleased, a lot of them through acquisitions. I, I'm sure you heard Oracle is on an acquisition spree. I, th I think we've gotten close to 100 companies we've acquired over the last five, uh, 10 years, and it seems to keep the, uh, going on for the future. Uh, we do have 80 owned sites throughout the world, uh, and only one right now in Latin America, but soon to have two. Uh, and we, again, are, uh, have a model 
where uh, the sites are, are from different sizes, from 1,000 to uh, 500,000 square feet. Uh, the portfolio uh, itself, the Americas, which is the largest, and Michelle is the one who heads that up, uh, is 25, uh, 9 million, uh, 25.8 total uh, we have in the portfolio. Uh, Latin America is a, a, a small slice of that. Uh, we're part of the Americas region now. We used to be part of international. Uh, and we've got the other three regions, uh, India, APAC, um, EMEA, and HQ. <laughs> uh, our org, uh, we have our global VP, Randy Smith, who also happens to be the chairman of, of Cornet. Uh, he reports directly to the CEO, who was formerly the CFO, uh, Safra Katz. So we get a lot of visibility with the C-suite, which is kind of an advantage. And sometimes it's a hindrance, but generally it helps us uh, to present our case. Uh, as mentioned, we have uh, four regions, uh, the APAC, Americas, EMEA, and HQ. And each one has their uh, respective uh, VPs. Uh, we have a, uh, within the organization, we have uh, shared services. Uh, we have an EHNS group, which has become instrumental in my region, because like India, we did not have a lot of that attention prior. And now we're becoming more safety and, and secure driven for our employees and, and when we do build out our projects. We also have a global lab and data operations that helps us with the design of, we have data centers throughout the world. And again, those are probably our most expensive properties. So we have a team focused on, on generating the most efficient solutions for these uh, uh, centers. Uh, an advanced planning team who does all the programming, uh, does some um, planning uh, as far as floor plans, uh, also helps us in maintaining the database for, for all the, the work that we've done throughout the re, uh, world. Uh, and a global real estate operations team, which is the ones that do all the processes and helps us to make sure that we're being compliant and, and following through on all the requirements that the corporate uh, requires. Finally, we have a portfolio administration. They do all the leasing and, and payments out of, a, out of Rockland throughout the whole world. So they're very busy and they help us a lot in making sure that we get our landlords paid on time. In total, we have a very big group. We have over 1,000 people. Uh, we service 135,000 people right now in Oracle. So we're a very big company, and we need a lot of support uh, to make sure we, we have a very demanding clientele. So we need all these people to help us make sure that we get the right space, right environment, and that our employees are being productive. We also have a $1 billion budget. We're the second biggest spend. It's roughly 2.5% of our overall from uh, our sales. And so it's uh, being the second biggest spend has a lot of visibility, and we got to make sure that we're uh, being as efficient and prudent with our spends as possible. Uh, and it gives us a, a huge amount of responsibility. Uh, we have an in-source model, as you can imagine, with a thousand people. A lot of things are done in-house. Uh, that way, we control the budgets, and we always, with our procurement folks, try to negotiate the best pricing. Uh, but we do outsource some some items: uh, the architectural, the brokerage, uh, the cafe management, and fitness centers. So that's a little bit about Oracle as a whole. Now back to my world, LAD, which I've been part of for now 15 years. Uh, I want to give you a little bit of insight because Latin America, like the other markets in, in the world, are, again, has a, 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 not a good understanding of how to do real estate. It's fairly new. It's very immature, very unsophisticated. And the information is hard to come by. You cannot get information on leases. There's no co-stars or a database where you might be able to pull and be able to use that as leverage in negotiations. Uh, a lot of families own the property, so they play close to the vest. Uh, brokerages have a tough time getting that information from, from the different uh, deals that are done. And so it, information is lacking. And again, you have to rely on, on uh, a company that does have a lot of deals that are going on or has 
a lot of uh, connectivity with the, the ownership, uh, the families that predominantly own property in, in Latin America. Measurement, everything's in square meters. 10.764, remember that conversion. That's what it is from square meters to square feet. And because we're an American company, everything has to be done in square feet. So we always have to be converting back and forth. And, and they also uh, give you rates monthly. It's not on an annual basis like they do in the US. The currency, there's not a euro or one standard currency throughout the region. We have a variety for each country. Uh, in some countries, we have even different exchange rates. Venezuela, for one, we have five different exchange rates that are applied. And it's very difficult to do business uh, to try to make sure that we have enough budget because it's always changing and very volatile. Contract law, you have to have uh, all the contracts in the, the host language, whether it's Spanish or Portuguese. Uh, there's a lot of nuances with regards to, to insurance. Uh, there's definitely uh, clauses that are particular to uh, the country. They do the, the primarily protect the interests of the tenant, which is favorable for us as a, as a company. Uh, but they aren't as, as boilerplate as they are in the US. It's uh, always customized, and each landlord or family uh, wants some different terms, and it's always negotiating kind of a new lease each time. Uh, as I mentioned, ownership is a condominium style. Uh, there's not, not very many REITs. There's not uh, institutional investors. Uh, families will own a floor of a 10-story building, and you might, if you're taking a four floors, be dealing with four different landlords. Uh, which becomes a little bit cumbersome. Taxes, very high on taxes. They, they have a value-added tax to everything. It's, and it varies from country to country, 15 to 25%. Uh, so you have to incorporate that into your budget, and that also makes it a little bit uh, more expensive to do business and build in, in Latin America. Customs, uh, they don't manufacture very much uh, material or equipment uh, in uh, Latin America, so they import from the U.S. primarily. Uh, in doing so, there's lead times to get it through customs. Uh, it takes about uh, up to two weeks to maybe six months uh, in Argentina, they're being very protectionist, to get product out. So we have to buy, find companies that do some type of uh, product in country if we, want, if we have an accelerated schedule to meet. Building codes, uh, there's local building codes, uh, which are a lot less lenient than the international codes. Uh, you'll find that you won't have an inspector coming on site when you're doing a fit out. Uh, you don't have to go through a permitting process like you do here in the U.S. Uh, you do have to have a fire marshal sign off on the drawings and make sure that you have all those uh, safety requirements in place and systems. But predominantly, you don't have that process of having to get an inspector in and, and check each uh, stage of the, of the project. Uh, as far as vendors, very limited supply. Uh, we have a tough time with our procurement team finding people to bid our projects. Uh, a lot of them are mom and pops. They don't have the capacity, they don't have the the bandwidth to be able to do it, or the resources, the finances. Uh, credit is very difficult to get in Latin America. It's very expensive. It goes from 18% uh, to, to 35% uh, if they borrow. So they won't. You have to put down a security deposit uh, so that they'll be able to buy the material. And, and generally, that's the 30% 30, 30 to 50% that we would have to put up front. Security, unfortunately, like every big uh, cities that, uh, here in the US, uh, the same in Latin America, but it's a little bit worse. Uh, we've had. Some improvements, uh, but it is uh, a, a challenge. And if you ever to go down there, you always want to make sure that you go with somebody local because there are some bad areas and you can get into some trouble. Parking is, is non-existent. Uh, they have no infrastructure. It's a lot like that shot in, in, China, in India. Uh, every, uh, the cars are all over the place. They've built out all these multi-story buildings, and they haven't uh, created any infrastructure to support it. 
And so in res what was residential neighborhoods, now have these 20-story buildings and all this traffic coming in and out, no parking, uh, very difficult challenge for us. The culture, again, very loving people. Uh, very, uh, you'll go down there and you know, they'll be friends for life. Uh, tough to do business because they're, they're not as, as focused on getting things done. Uh, they, they, work, they work to live, they don't live to work. Uh, family's very important, soccer's number one in, in their lives. They always, everything will stop to see the World Cup. Uh, but they have, again, this appreciation for dealing with uh, the US and, and companies such as ours, and they always will go out of their way to make you feel welcome and, and try to get the job done. Telecommunications are a little bit difficult and challenging. It generally takes us about uh, three to six months to get a circuit delivered. Uh, so network connectivity is key for our business. If we don't have that circuit, if that circuit delivery is delayed, it's going to affect the project. And there's not very many other companies you can go to as you would here in the U.S. And talent, abundant. There's a lot of educated people, young workforce, very anxious to, to work for multinational companies. Uh, and, and they're very reasonably priced when you look at it compared to the U.S. Okay, now I'm going to talk a little bit about the, the project that I was fortunate to work on with Michelle and, and the rest of our team, and it was a very exciting project for me. Uh, it was the first owned building in the site as I'm, uh, in our portfolio, as I mentioned, and we had um, a challenge in that we were trying to in, in, include or, or establish a new concept altogether to uh, a culture that's very hierarchical. We had middle managers that were looking for the corner office, were looking for their own space, and we had, lo and behold, a president that was forward-thinking that wanted to do away with all that. He wanted more interaction. He wanted the people to come together. He wanted to create the synergy within our space. And so he wanted to create some excitement. And so what we try to do in meeting with him and his directs is try to combine these requirements and develop this project that we call collaborative uh, concept uh, so that we can fit all the needs. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the challenges. Again, as real estate professionals, we're always looking to optimize or, or create efficiencies within our space. We had the challenge where we had the 35% growth uh, year over year for the Sao Paulo market. It is our biggest market. Uh, and we were lacking space. Uh, we had a bunch of people coming on board, limited time to do the project. I think in total it was eight months. Uh, and we were now you know, under um, the, this trying to introduce a, concept, a new concept at the same time. Um, we were looking at uh, enhancing the collaboration and building trust. I think that's the most important word we were trying to convey to our, our end users is uh, get the trust between themselves. They used to be siloed, separated, not a lot of interaction, and we wanted to have that visibility and make sure that they were interacting and, and talking and, and thinking about new ideas and creating new, new ways to do our, our business. So we, we, we looked at creating IWE spaces and public and private neighborhoods. Uh, we, did, we adopted these concepts because we knew we had to have a bit of separation and, and, and also the coming together of all these different people. Uh, we wanted to attract uh, uh, the talent and, and develop them. Uh, we wanted to give them choice where they worked. We didn't want to look at them as being only working at the workstation. We wanted to move through the, the facility. So, uh, we, all these concepts we were trying to incorporate as we were going through this design process. Very important to build our brand. Uh, in, in the previous um, floor plans or spaces, we didn't have that Oracle name very present in, throughout the, the building. You'll see the logo in the front of the, the, the building maybe, but other than that, there was no mention of it. So we wanted to introduce that and, and have it so all our people were thinking about it. And when we had clients come in, they would be thinking Oracle. 
uh, the well-being of our employees. We wanted to make sure that we took care of their ergonomic needs and, and make sure that they were moving around. Uh, we w used natural light because we found that that was something that was pleasant to them. We did surveys and they always talked about you know, getting into a sunny, sunny environment. So we made sure that we had a lot, a, as much sun exposure as we could. And then we had the challenge of management support. We were talking about a big spend for the company, uh, 165 million reais, which is right now roughly $55 million, to a third world country. And again, it's the first concept that we're introducing uh, in the portfolio with the collaborative, and there was a risk involved. And again, we wanted to come up with the right solution. So in doing that, we used these three pillars uh, as the focus in, in developing the concept. Of course, the design is number one, and I have an architectural background, and that was something that really interested me, and we talked uh, at length and looked at different images so we can develop the concept and, and create solutions to these challenges that we had. Technology, we're a technology company. Most certainly we got to have that in our, in our, our buildings. Uh, we wanted to focus on it and make sure we had wireless everywhere so people can connect, whether they're in the cafeteria, whether they're in, uh, outside in, in, in a little seating area, uh, that they were able to get uh, on, on, on the network and, and work if they needed to. And finally, focus on the brand and the culture, which is, uh, again, very important to our, our business and, and our clients and making sure that the Oracle name was front and center. In the design principles, basically we wanted to inspire people and create this sensation and synergy and electricity. And when you walk into the Sao Paulo facility, you sense it. You, you feel that there's movement, that there's energy. People are excited, they're talking, they're engaged, they're interacting. And again, through the use of movement, of, of the space that we designed and the light, uh, we were able to, to accomplish it. On technology, again, I talked about the wireless and we wanted to get, uh, use uh, plasma screens to, to reinforce the messaging. So we had a lot of uh, plasmas throughout the, the site. Uh, we had uh, extensive audio visual because we had a nice auditorium that we built out. Uh, so we were trying to advance from the product that we had before. And finally, the brand and the, and the culture and develop the spirit of team. One Red Team was the mantra we wanted to create. And uh, our president would always talk about it and remind people. We would send out uh, photos of the progression of the project so people got excited and they felt part of the solutions. We had focus groups that we did surveys uh, so that they were also a part of it and we were able to get their input from the actual people that were going to use our space and try to incorporate it into the final design. So we did have some influences and again this is kind of a um, informational, uh, infomercial. Uh, because I do try to sell the region. I do want people to come down. It's, uh, a lot of people don't get the chance, and, and it's a beautiful region. There's a lot to see. And as part of uh, the, this is uh, the photo of the waterfalls is Iwasu, spectacular waterfalls comparable to uh, Niagara. And it, it gave us the sense of flowing and the fluidity that we wanted to have in our site. Uh, the photo up at the top right is, is the Mexican, uh, Mexico City Cathedral uh, with the amazing plaza. So there was grandeur. We want to try to incorporate some sense of grandeur and purpose. Uh, the photo on the lower left is Machu Picchu, and that's in my home country, Peru. Uh, and we wanted to have the majesticness of, of that site and the scale and, and create that awe that, that you see or sense in that photo in our thing. Of course, green was very big within the focus uh, groups that we did, <laughs> these young guys coming in or uh, young people. They're very much interested in working for green companies, socially responsible companies, as I think we all know. And so we were very focused on developing lead um, uh, targeted specs uh, so that we can ensure that we were being, uh, we can promote that, that as, as part of it. And finally, the Chrysler Redeemer, which is in uh, Rio, 
we wanted to have that sense of embrace and bringing everybody together. Uh, so we took all this stuff together and we had some other images that we inspired us, you know, the color, the use of color, that conference room that's kind of floating out, something unique, something different, the movement of the space with the, the use of light. Uh, th these are the kind of things that we took into account to try to be able to develop the concept. Uh, you can see, to uh, interact, how we can create spaces that, that the people will get excited about and, and, and utilize and, and actually interact with one another and get to know each other and, and develop projects. And finally, innovation. We wanted to create this kind of homey style uh, where they could get together uh, and be comfortable and, and, and be able to start thinking something new. So uh, the movement that we've tried to create, uh, and it, we were successful because you there's movement you can do in design through the, the ceiling, the, the way you curve, uh, and also through the flooring, the colors you use. And it provides this sense of working through the, the an experience working through the, the facility. And then, of course, there's time, alone time. So we had to make sure we had these uh, locations where people can disconnect and be in, if they had to make a, a confidential call or, or be uh, focused on, on doing something that needed to get some urgency, we, we created these little pods or, or focus rooms so that the people could, could utilize. And the result is this core design, which again, there's our O, uh, the Oracle, and this is the space. So we had a focus on the center uh, of being the place to be. Uh, people would gather in this area constantly. We have four floors. Uh, that are flexile. Uh, that would be uh, the, um, uh, where the salespeople and more transient folks come. This is our executive level. This is where the president sits, uh, along with the senior VPs of, of Latin America. They're on the left-hand side in, in this room, all together. There's no big office. Before we did this concept, you would go into uh, an office for the managing director, and it would be roughly about 750 square feet. It would have a bar. It would have his own bathroom. It would have a little sitting area. And it was just for him, and then his secretary would be out in the front. And he was on like a glass tower. Our president didn't want that. He wanted to be with the people. He wanted people to see him, and he see the people. He wanted that interaction. So we, we came up with this idea. This is a, a rendering of the space of what we thought it could be looking like. This is the aquarium. This is where the president, he sits right in this, this area. Uh, he always says, this is where all the big sharks are at. That's why we call it the aquarium. And so he, he's there uh, with his team. They're making deals. They're getting together. They use these chairs to meet. Uh, very, very interactive space for them. Uh, we also gave them some conference room space. So they, if they did need to get together quickly, they had it close by. And so we had a mezzanine, and we built out uh, some, an executive conference room, and then three, three rooms that could be combined to one if, if needed. <laughs> this is a bird's eye view of the rendering uh, from the top of the conference rooms and what the space would look like and overlooking the employees. And again, here's the more transient space. We have four floors of these in, in our 12-story building uh, that is open seating. Uh, you go and sit down, and you uh, connect. All the sales and consultants folks are located in these rooms. Very limited amount of closed offices. We only have closed, enclosed offices for the legal team, the HR team, and our security manager, because they handle confidential information. Everybody else sits open and together. Uh, again, here are the phone, phone booths uh, that were very important to give them uh, places so they can talk in, in private. And we've got the, the meeting room and the secondary reception. And you're clicking me faster, right? <laughs> OK. Uh, OK, and I'm just wrapping up here. And so uh, this is the, uh, we have a floor dedicated for the clientele on the eighth floor. And that is uh, where all the clients come to. And we even have a little meeting area for them if they need to, to come together and meet. 
And this is a dedicated floor where all the administrative staff sits. And again, it's a lot similar to, to the rest. And finally, the disconnect space. We wanted to give them something a lot different from the, the space that we were, uh, had for the office, where they would go and eat, meet, and we have a game room where we have foosball table and we and next station, uh, PlayStation, and, and they would get together and have tournaments. Finally, the reception, and then the celebration. This is where, this is the other CEO we have, Mark Kurt. Uh, the gentleman on the top left is uh, Luis Meiser. He was the president. And uh, Randy Smith is there, and Michelle's there in the background, too. And that's it. Beautiful. Thanks. Thanks. Any questions? Good. Right, Mario, Mario, thanks. We're going to pass on the questions because I want to make sure we have enough time for Lee okay. on, on this one. But thank you. Uh, you absolutely hit on exactly what we were looking for, which is sharing experiences on a real contemporary, great project internationally. Thank you so, so much. Um, and now, right before I introduce Lee, I want to take one second. Thank you to the people in the front row here, especially the board and uh, you guys do some great work. You scramble around for evening events, these type events. I don't want that to get lost at the last second here. Um, really, really good work. You keep the chapter rolling. Thank you, thank you. For the people out there, please acknowledge them. Um, and now I get a chance to introduce uh, Lee. And as many of you have known Lee, he's uh, been a leader at Cornet for a lot of years. He's uh, keeps one leg in the Detroit office for Cornet, but we call him here our Chicago office because he keeps a leg here. And uh, he has done some fantastic work from his home office transformation, their uh, place along the river here, which is just out outrageously well, well done. Um, when I get stuck on something, I'm talking to my friends Kevin, and Lee is at the top of the list on who I go to. Um, Lee, we're honored. Thank you so much. Come on up and uh, give your presentation. It's, it's on Europe and uh, a fun project you've got going in Milan or outside of Milan. Well, I hope not to disappoint everyone, but I don't have any slides. Uh, so we're going to have a conversation. Uh, but I'd like to follow up on what Mike was talking about, and that is the fact that you're here in Cornet in general. Um, as Mike said, I've been involved in Cornet for a number of years, and it's been great uh, for me. And one of the things that when I was uh, national uh, global chairman was we knew we could always count on the Chicago chapter. And it really the lifeblood and success of Cornet is the chapters. And Chicago has always been kind of up there with the best of the best around the world, and we could always count on you. So. Again, I want to say thank you to the current board, but also the past people and just being participants, because without that, Cornet does not exist. But um, it's also been good for me. Um, I oversee global real estate operations for Whirlpool, and that means doing a lot of traveling around the world. And so it's uh, beneficial to have the connections. If you're a fellow Cornet member, it's like a brother or sister, and you can call them up and get real information, real time, and that's something that, you know, you can't put a price on it. So, again, thank you for that. Uh, Whirlpool Corporation, hopefully everyone here has heard of us. And more importantly, hopefully every one of you has one of our products, if not multiple products, in your home. Uh, if not, see me. We can change that. Uh, but we, um, 
We are a, a company um, that has uh, been around for a, just about uh, 105 years now. So we uh, grew up just across the lake in Benton Harbor, Michigan, and that's where the headquarters stays. We have um, globally now uh, about, about 23 billion a year. We have uh, just shy of 100 million square feet in 950 locations around the world. And just like some of the others, we're split up into the four regions. Uh, we have about 100,000 employees, and we manufacture stuff. We manufacture, distribute, and try to make everyone's lives a little bit easier. Uh, some of the key brands, if you're not familiar with Whirlpool, uh, hopefully you've heard of uh, Maytag, uh, KitchenAid, uh, are part of our Amana here in North America. And then we also have uh, Gen Air, we have, uh, in addition to that, Bachneck in Europe. We have uh, Multibras and Brostemp in uh, South America. And we're proud to notice that Brostemp in Brazil is the second most recognized brand in Brazil uh, besides uh, Coke being number one, we're number two. So it's kind of, a, it's, it's something we're very proud of. And then what we're gonna, I was gonna talk a little bit about is uh, Europe. Uh, we have gone through, uh, at the end of last year, we did two major acquisitions. Uh, and that's how we have grown largely as a company. It's a, it's a very uh, uh, fragmented industry historically, and so the, really the best way to grow was through acquisition. Uh, back in 2006, we acquired Maytag, which brought on the Amana and Gen Air brands. In um, globally, Appliance corporation, uh, appliance manufacturing companies tended to be family owned. Uh, Whirlpool started with the Upton family uh, and they built it up. Uh, we were back then sole supplier of appliances for Sears and the Kenmore brand and finally in the 50s, 60s and 70s broke off and created our own image uh, with Whirlpool. Uh, we still manufacture a significant number of the Kenmore products but uh, in Europe it was the Borgie family and we just uh, uh, purchased the Merloni family's uh, interest in Indeset. Uh, in Brazil, it was the Echenique family. So it's kind of interesting that across the globe, that majority of the growth has come and been built in this industry by families. And we've been able, lucky enough, to consolidate them. Like I said, in Europe, we um, completed the acquisition of uh, Indeset. Indeset allowed us to go from position number three in the European market to number one. And we are just, for reference, we are number one market share in North America. We're number one in Europe. We're number one in South America. We're number two in India. And we, uh, I wish I could say we're number one in China, but we're not. Uh, but we are the largest Western company in China, uh, manufacturing appliances. And there we uh, purchased uh, Sanyo Hefei last year. So when you combine the Indeset and Sanyo Hefe acquisition in uh, China, uh, within 10 days, uh, we picked up, from my standpoint, the, the fun stuff, uh, 30 million square feet and 30,000 employees uh, in two things. So that was uh, uh, made for a lot of sleepless nights. As Mike says, I do uh, travel a lot with the, especially with the European acquisition. Um, it was the most complicated one we've ever done and for some reasons I'll talk about. But uh, so for the most part, for the, 
little over a year now, I've been traveling to Europe every other week, uh, commuting to Europe for integration management meetings, because uh, I have the uh, fortune enough to sit on the management committee there. And so uh, getting ready for our uh, leadership uh, meetings and in participating in them, so I get to fly back and forth a lot. So uh, I do accumulate a lot of air miles, um, but that's about all I can say about that. We, we are a, uh, in a very beautiful spot of Italy. It's uh, outside of Milan. And so and, uh, if anyone's familiar with Lake Como, Lake Laga Maggiore area, that's where we're headquartered. Uh, so, you know, the scenery, the food, the wine, that's great. But usually we're working 12, 14 hour days. So it, uh, it, you don't get to take advantage of that very often, especially when you want to get home and see your family too. But talking a little bit about um, Europe, uh, we, when we purchased them, it was a good fit. Uh, they were a public company, but family controlled. Uh, the family owned about uh, just lower 50% of the company. It was on the Italian stock exchange. So we bought the family shares, then purchased the rest of the shares outstanding in on the market. We were fortunate enough to secure enough shares that we could take it private. And then we are in the process of folding it in. But unlike the U.S., when we bought Maytag, you're not buying a company, you're buying basically 42 countries' operations. And so you think about doing 42 what we call legal entity mergers. And every country has its own rules, its own processes that have to be followed. And so you have to create separate integration plans for each country. And that becomes even more difficult because even key things like in Spain, for instance, uh, Indeset had an operation in, uh, their headquarters for Spain was in Madrid. Ours was in Barcelona. We looked at the different opportunities. We said Barcelona, we felt, was the better opportunity to consolidate these operations. So, you know, typically you would say, okay, we're going to relocate so many people to Barcelona and take on additional space. Well, in Europe, and many of you may have had this opportunity, but you have the worker council that you have to deal with in social contracts. So we had to go to the worker council in Madrid and give them a business case why Barcelona was a better economic opportunity for them and the company, and then they could vote on it to see if they would accept our plan. Otherwise, we would have to, a much more complicated process of consolidating operations from one country, uh, from one office into another office, even within the same country. So if you can imagine, for us there, there's 42 countries that we're dealing with in our business in EMEA, and everyone has to go through that process. So when we want to consolidate warehouses, we want to consolidate manufacturing platform, every country has its own unique business case that we had to create. And so the goal was to create that as quickly as possible uh, to complete the integration process. And, uh, but I guess uh, thankfully for our job security, and every time it involves some type of real estate activity too. So um, that, that's been uh, fun to, to work on. And also then trying to figure out, you know, when you get this acquisition, is it any acquisition, I've done about uh, 10 major M&As in my career at Whirlpool, um, you know, there's different steps you have to go through. You need to collect information. 
Morella is here. She helps us uh, with the lease administration work for MBG. Um, but you have to get the information. You got to get the documents. So you got all the documents in different countries' languages. You need to be able to uh, translate that. You need to get that going. You need to also um, understand, you know, what type of values are there, because and what their processes are, because you're integrating a what had been largely a family-run corporation, even though it was fairly large, uh, the way decisions were made were much different than ours. We have a much more centralized approach to managing the real estate portfolio. So helping them understand governance, that is a real challenge. Um, uh, most, most country leaders would say, well, I'm the, I'm the president of France. I get to make my own decisions. That's... Uh, not true, our commitment authority is very specific about who has authority to commit um, and, and sign things, and uh, that is the country manager can be given permission to sign, but they do not have authority to sign anything without our blessing along with senior leadership. So trying to get that communicated. Then you have the language even about, we asked a question for SEC reporting for year-end commitments, uh, you know, what's your total lease payments? And they said, zero. Uh, how can you have, you know, we know that you have all these leases. Zero lease commitment came, came back the second time. We did, weren't asking the right question. We forgot to say, what's the rent you're paying? Oh, rent, that's a whole different thing. Then they gave us the numbers we were looking for. So you, have to, you just have to realize, you know, different chal challenges with culture and such. Uh, and then trying to understand the physical inspections. Uh, you know, we, we prioritize which which countries were important. We're, we have major operations now in Russia, Turkey, um, uh, in Middle East. So we had to pri prioritize that. I have a small team. We have, uh, I have 10 people globally, uh, internal. The rest is all, uh, JLL provides my arms and legs to operate our global portfolio. But trying to prioritize it and trying to find the resources to be able to do so much so quickly was the other challenge that we ran into. And then trying to understand the real value of all the owned assets, because as part of uh, M&A work, uh, you do set, reset the values on your balance sheet to market. And we use outside resources to help do that. But they, too, did not always have, just like South America, you don't have great information across all these countries and across all these markets. And so they would come back with information, and we spent a lot, a lot of time challenging that information because that's what goes on the balance sheet, and that's the NB netbook value that you live with. And you know, some people felt it was good. Oh, this is really valuable stuff. Yeah, but the replacement true in that market isn't that high. And if you put it up there, I've increased my depreciation by X millions of dollars for the region year, and that's not a good guy either. So it's a balance process. So that's another piece of the M&A work that you need to go through to make it happen. And then creating a culture, as uh, they were talking about, Oracle was talking about trying to create a culture that's one company, one uh, mindset of how to go about it is, um, is a challenge because you're, you're taking two personalities and bringing them together. And the quicker you can, the last thing you want to hear at the end of the day is, you know, the way we used to do it was better. What we want to say, we want to take what was best of your company, what's the best of our company, decide what's the best going forward, but then let's all be on the same train together. 
going down the same track. And that can be a real challenge. Um, again, the people are used to having much more autonomy than they've had in the past. Now you have a global corporation that has you know, required governance activities that uh, need to take place. So, and then, so th those are the types of things we're doing. We're in, I'd say, about 40% through the process right now. We will have completed all the transitions and uh, migrations to the new legal entity merger process by uh, October of next year. And uh, that will just then kick off all the other stuff because we also oversee CapEx for all real estate related activities. So it's de deciding, again, prioritizing which countries need more capital than others for a real estate perspective. How do we how do we implement that capital expenditure? How do we manage it? Uh, again, a very uh, challenging process that you need to go through, but it, you couldn't get ahead of the game because again, the LEM, until you're legally merged, you couldn't do certain things. You couldn't move people together. And in fact, if I move people from an Innocent office to a Whirlpool office or vice versa, prior to the legal entity merger, I had to sign subleases and allocate costs because both companies until that time had to operate separately, even though we own 100% of them. So again, it's, it's, a, it's a different uh, way of going about the process, uh, but it's, it's been fun and uh, it's, it's been a learning experience and uh, something that makes it fun to get up in the morning. I mean, at the end of the day, you gotta have fun. But uh, we've had a few surprises, not particularly in this most recent acquisition in Europe, but another one that we did a few years ago in Poland. Um, and uh, that one was unique because we found out post that as part of the, uh, what we thought was developable land uh, turned out to be, unfortunately, uh, a grave site for 5,000 German soldiers uh, that, from World War II. So we worked with the German government to exhume the soldiers and have them expatriated back to Germany um, so that we could have reuse of the property down the road. And then we found out that um, that it was also a, the uh, location for uh, Russian missiles that we thought was a, uh, uh, based upon our information, was uh, a fruit farm. Well, the fruit farm was, uh, was built above the bunkers which had the missiles. And so uh, taking that down and uh, creating that for redevelopment opportunities was a little bit fun too. So you find some good guys. Um, you, we, we've also, you know, found some interesting uh, non-real estate assets in our assets that uh, have been cool to collect uh, along the way, but I guess that's the part of the fun of being in real estate. At the end of the day, every location, every deal, every uh, activity you do is very seldom the same as the one that you did before. And uh, that's what's attracted me in this industry and what's kept me here is because uh, anytime you think you have it, there's always a new nuance that comes up and that's what you work on. So that talks a little bit about the acquisition process that we go through. Again, we work very closely with our senior leadership team. Uh, we meet uh, uh, once a month uh, together uh, with our vice chairman and our president of Europe, and we sit down very detailed plans. And uh, communications, again, is, is the key because as you have all these different entities, all these different countries doing things, if you don't communicate today, tomorrow, over and over again, uh, people uh, forget that there's new nuances that need to be done and 
you spend more time retracting stuff than you do delivering new product at the end of the day. So, so that's what we've been up to. Um, lots, lots of learnings, more learnings than I have time to talk about. Uh, and, uh, but if there's any questions after, I'd be happy to, because I know we are running out of time. Yeah, we're a little bit over, but it's really refreshing to see your company and your real estate department tied in at the C-suite, much like Oracle, Michelle's yep. company, and Mario's company tied in at the C-suite. That's just fantastic. One quick question before we cut out, and it relates around M&A, and that is post an acquisition, what would be the biggest challenges in an integration plan um, now that you kind of get the backside yeah, of that. I, I think, again, it's getting the, the base information that you can make real decisions from. And again, collecting data for the locations, to collecting data on the leases. If you don't have that information in a format that you can use it, you make, you make decisions that are, may not be long-term appropriate for the company. And so, the rents, yes. Uh, <laughs> I have a hard time uh, doing that. But uh, that, that's the biggest challenge, is trying to collect all that information and trying to gather enough consistency in it so that you can really report back and make integration decisions. Because it's not what we're doing tomorrow or next year. It's what we want to do five years from now. And you really want to make sure that you take your steps appropriately and get position so that you can execute the best integration strategy going forward. Great. Neil, uh, we're, we're a little bit over here, about five, 10 minutes. Um, Neil, any final wrap up from y'all or uh, any, anybody? Go ahead, John. No, I, I think that's it. Just uh, give a big round of applause for our panel. They're fantastic. <laughs> thank you, everybody. Um, we wanted to thank uh, Rob Weatherald. Um, Renee Bradshaw and John Hopkins for helping us put the panel together and uh, come see us next month for a West Side Story to hear about uh, West Loop and how it's changing the Chicago uh, office landscape. Thanks, guys. <laughs>